Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you part two of the audio from our recent webinar on state regulatory reform. If you missed part one, that episode will be linked in the show notes. If you'd like to contact a scholar involved in this webinar, please email outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Next, you'll hear from Karen Zarnecki, Vice President of Outreach at Mercatus, who is moderating the discussion. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Karen Zarnecki, Vice President of Outreach for the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today is the second part of a two-part series on state regulatory reform. Part one discussed why regulatory reform is needed. Today, we'll be hearing from state officials from Arizona and Oklahoma who have successfully helped to implement reforms in their states and discuss the rationale behind their specific reforms and the challenges they faced in implementing them. We will also discuss practical suggestions for consideration by lawmakers based on what additional states have done and conversations our experts have had with government officials at all levels. And if you have any questions afterwards, we'll be happy to set up a time for you to talk with any one of our panel members for follow-up. Our first speaker today is going to be James Brawl, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center and an adjunct professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School. He specializes in state and federal regulatory procedures, cost-benefit analysis, and economic growth. Our second speaker today will be Matt Mitchell, a Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center and Director of the Equal Liberty Initiative. He is also an adjunct professor of economics at George Mason University. Matt specializes in public choice economics and the economics of government favoritism toward particular businesses, industries, and occupations. Our third speaker today is Gretchen Conger, Deputy Chief of Staff to Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. She oversees the governor's budget office in implementing a structurally balanced, values-based budget that focuses on Arizona's greatest areas of need, including education and health and welfare. Gretchen has been with Governor Ducey since he was elected in 2015, and she has also served as the Director of Legislative Affairs and Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy and Budget. Finally, our fourth speaker is going to be Oklahoma's new Deputy Secretary of State, Jessica Cleveland. Prior to her current role, she led research and implementation of Governor Stitt's Break the Tape Regulatory Reform Initiative aimed at reducing outdated and burdensome regulations that stand in the way of Oklahoma economy. She maintains a role as a policy advisor to the Office of Governor Stitt as well. All right, James, Matt, Jessica, and Gretchen, thanks for joining us today to share your experiences with state regulatory reform, what has worked, and what the challenges you faced during implementation. All right, James, I'm going to ask you, uh, start with you at least. Can you walk us through how many states have implemented or attempted to implement regulatory reform in recent years? Sure. Thanks, Karen. Well, we live in a bit of a golden age of regulatory reform, actually, which is great news for regulatory researchers like myself. There really has been a wave of reforms that we've seen happening in the states over the last few years, and the federal government has been taking notice. So, about a year ago, President Trump created something called the Governor's Initiative on Regulatory Innovation, and it's being overseen by Mike Pence, and it's a way for the states and the federal government to share information about regulatory reform and lessons learned. And I would argue this initiative was really created because the White House noticed that so many reforms were happening across the different states, which is really a testament to the states being a leader in this area. So what have they been doing? Well, their first kinds of reforms are what I would call red tape reduction efforts. And these are reviews of the regulatory code. They're usually or often triggered 
by a governor's action, like a, an executive order of some kind. Uh, Kentucky was one of the first states to institute a, a review like this a few years ago. I would argue that Kentucky's reforms inspired some of the reforms we saw at the, from the White House just a year or two later when President Trump first took office. Uh, Idaho, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Arizona are all states that have had reforms like this. So we'll be hearing more about Oklahoma and Arizona's reforms. So I won't go into too much detail about them, all except right. to say that Governor Stitt of Oklahoma has, uh, he issued an executive order in January or February of this year that really could potentially be a model for other states to look at it. It, it has a one in two out requirement, a 25% across the board reduction goal. And these are definitely best practices. So if your state is looking for an example of an executive order to model um, your state's after I would look at that one. Then there are states that have had red tape reduction efforts and enacted through legislation. So Ohio passed a one in two out requirement that's going to be in place for the next four years. Mm -hmm. uh, that passed about a year ago. Texas. And, and they did that through the budget process. So a different process. That's right. That This was part of their budget bill. So it was um, just an amendment to their budget bill. Texas has a one in one out requirement. Uh, and Virginia passed a regulatory reduction pilot program that focuses on occupational licensing and criminal justice related regulation to start and has a 25% reduction goal for those kinds of regulations. And there's a good chance that will be expanded to other kinds of regulations in the near future. We've seen sunset provisions required from some states. So North Carolina set up a process where every 10 years they're going to review their regulations and sunset that those that don't make sense anymore. Indiana and New Jersey have sunset provisions. Those could also be uh, models to look after. And then the final kind of reform I'll mention are economic analysis requirements. And in this area, West Virginia is a, is a model. They're in the process of creating a new Office of Regulatory and Fiscal Affairs. And what's novel about this is this office is housed in the legislature. So it will be overseen by the legislative branch. It's going to be independent of the regulatory agencies that produce rules. And so this structure is innovative because it may lead to more objective and transparent analysis. So that's kind of a brief overview of some of the reforms we've seen in the last few years, which I see as really being innovative. But there's lots of opportunities to take these reforms to the next level up as well. Yeah, I think that's very exciting. There are a lot of different reforms and we can go into detail with any one of these. But I think I want to take a little bit of a step back. And Matt Mitchell, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Um, just in a general sense, why do we have so many bad regulations on the books and what are the effects of bad or poorly designed regulations? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them has to do with just sort of the simple calculus of political economy. Um, you know, any okay. public English, English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so any any public policy is going to in, involve both costs and benefits, right? right. But uh, what tends to happen is public policy tends to favor or um, tilt towards policies that involve concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. And what we mean by that is those who benefit from uh, public policy tend to be relatively few in number, whereas those who bear the cost tend to be relatively numerous. And the reason for this is just has to do with the costs of political organization. Um, you know, if, if you or I or anybody else find out about a regulation that imposes a cost on us as consumers by, say, limiting, comp it, it, let's say it, it limits competition in a certain industry, uh, it's likely that because consumers are so numerous that the cost that any one of us bears is going to be relatively small. But 
the benefits that it provides to a few uh, producers, because there tend to be fewer producers, tend to be quite large. And when it comes to political organization, if you go to try to, to, uh, you know, get organized, to uh, lobby, form a PAC, um, just even um, form relationships with members of a legislature, it's so much easier to do that if if you're trying to herd a few cats producers than if you're trying to herd lots of cats, consumers. So as a general rule, regulations do often have that kind of dynamic, and they're often um, anti-competitive. There's other reasons, too. One of the big problems is just the process of regulatory um, promulgation. Uh, It's kind of a myth that a lot of regulations go through some sort of a rigorous cost-benefit analysis. And the truth is, um, at the federal level, 99% of, of new regulations actually don't go through any type of a cost benefit analysis. And at the state level, that number is probably higher, unfortunately. Wow. Okay. Uh, Matt, you have worked with a couple of colleagues on something called the Fresh Start Initiative. And can you tell us what that is? And if the state wanted to implement it, what should they do? Yeah. So uh, one thing to note is what an a uh, very strange moment we're in right now. Uh, so over the last, obviously it's strange for many reasons, but over the last uh, 12 months, um, states and the federal government have suspended, eased, or modified over 600 regulations. Um, many of these are d- designed to make it easier for healthcare providers to deal with COVID. Uh, so they've done things like uh, ease or, or uh, suspend certificate of need laws that limit healthcare providers, change rules governing the scope of practice of nurse practitioners, making it easier for them to practice up to the level of their training, gotten rid of limits to telehealth that, that uh, stand in the way of people being able to access uh, providers who happen to be in another state. Uh, some of these rules have just made it easier for the rest of us to deal with life in lockdown. So, for example, several states have made it easier to have home delivery of alcohol. Um, but as these rules have been eased or suspended, it raises a big question. What, are, what do we do, do with these rules once COVID goes away? Mm-hmm. Um, if these rules weren't serving the public interest during covid uh, does that mean that they serve the public interest in normal times? Uh, and so what my, my colleagues and I are suggesting is that states take this opportunity. Policymakers have essentially identified a bunch of rules that probably don't make sense. Uh, so take this opportunity to study those rules carefully. Uh, don't immediately bring them back. An in- independent commission to look at these rules um, and decide what to do with them. Um, and it's our hope in some sense that this is an opportunity to change that political calculus of the concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. Use this opportunity to, uh, you know, do something different, really. All right, great. We can always come back to it a little bit later. Gretchen, it's time to talk about Arizona. Now, you work for Governor Ducey. Can you walk us through Arizona's universal licensing recognition? What is it and what does it mean for real people? Absolutely. And I'm so excited to jump in on some of these other topics as well, but I'll start with universal license recognition. And I just want to start by saying that this is an issue that's really near and dear to Governor Ducey's heart. Um, You may or may not know, he came from the ice cream world. He was uh, the CEO of Coldstone Creamery and grew that company to as an entrepreneur to a massive organization of um, something that everybody loves, ice cream. That was well before he started his public life and coming into public life. uh, I think that really caused him to care a lot about this issue of regulation. Um, He certainly understands it from the business perspective. And since day one, I've been been working for him um, since he was elected. And since day one, he asks, what can we do to limit the number of new laws and how can we reduce regulations? Fast forward to 2019. 
And we introduced this concept of universal license recognition. And really, I think what we did is we, leading up to that point, we'd really been going after what we we were as low hanging fruit, which I laugh at now because we got pummeled by so many industries when we were trying to, you know, get rid of a license here and reduce a regulation here. And I just felt like we were, you know, just one thing at a time, really just not making huge gains in terms of universal recognition. So we got with the governor and said, what if we went a little bit higher? What if we zoomed out a little bit and said, why do, Why are we asking people moving to Arizona, which by the way, Maricopa County, which is the county that Phoenix is in, fastest growing county in the nation. We've got people moving here every single day looking for opportunity that Arizona provides. So with all these people moving here, why are we asking them to retell us how qualified they are to do the job they've already been doing. Um, And so that's why we call it universal license recognition. We basically say, hey, our friends in Oklahoma, when they move to Arizona, Oklahoma has already determined that they're qualified to do that job. Why does Arizona need to make them prove it again? Give them their license and and let them do their work. Um, And so, you know, people often say, well, this is like reciprocity. And and we've really avoided using the word reciprocity because we're not relying on any of our partner states to do this. I mean, we'd love it if they do it. You know, we want people to come to Arizona. We're not looking to get rid of people. So um, we're okay being sort of the most forward thinking in this regard. Um, But it's not reciprocity. We're not saying that Arizonans, if you move, you know, to another state that they're going to recognize your your qualifications and your skill set. But when you move to Arizona, we're going to recognize that. And we're going to say, we trust our, our partner states to have done their due diligence and making sure uh, that they're qualified to work. So really, it was about getting out of the weeds. What can we do bigger picture um, to actually help real people? And we, I mean, we've seen great successes so far, contractors in particular. We talk about the state that's growing. Of course, you can hear the train in the background right now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, apologize. That's something I literally- Get out of the way. <laughs> um, but contractors, cosmetologists, behavioral health, those are the top three licenses where people have come to Arizona and said, yeah, I've been doing this in California. I've been doing this in Texas. I, why should I have to prove it all over that I, that I can do this? Um, we also get the question of safety a lot. And I just wanted to address that right up front. All we're saying is that you get your license on day one. Now you have to follow the laws of the state. So um, all of the safety uh, regulations, everything is still in place. You're still a licensed professional. Um, We just didn't make you jump through all the extra hoops in order to work in Arizona. And I think that's the key uh, that makes this so exciting and why the governor, you know, I want to bounce off what Matt was saying. Obviously, we've got, you know, COVID and all these regulations we've reduced. And the governor always says he loves the collegial competition between governors because it makes us better. We look at what other states are doing. I mean, I can't tell you how many days during the pandemic we were reviewing what all of our partner states were doing to say, hey, why haven't we done this yet? Let's do this. Can we do something more in this area? And I think that collegial competition amongst the governors um, is something like that has really made, like you said, the federal government pay attention. Um, And so there's, I think there's a lot more we can do here. Let me ask you a follow-up then. What are the biggest hurdles you faced from the legislature when the governor started this whole movement, at least started with uh, universal recognition? It's interesting because um, the legislature, by the time we got to universal license recognition, in Arizona, we had recognized military spouses licenses since 2011 or 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'd already, we were able to make the case even to, you know, both parties, this was a bipartisan issue, to say, 
we haven't heard of any health or safety issues. This has been really positive for these military spouses. Um, you hear some of the stories that these people tell about how difficult it was moving from state to state. And, you know, they, they're only there sometimes for two years and it takes them a year to get their license. And by that time they've lost, you know, the year of work, the experience. Um, and so we were able to just really make the case on the military spouse piece to say, nobody's been injured by this. This hasn't caused anybody's, um, you know, health or safety to be at risk. So why not offer it to all Arizonans? And so with the legislature, it was a lot easier. I think I we have some war stories from some of the industries, um, sort of the competition aspect. But legislators, I think, really got it that, you know, this is about people being able to work. That's actually great that you already had some some uh, a number of years of experience before you implemented more. All right, Jessica, I'm going to ask you some similar questions. Can you tell us about Oklahoma's Break the Tape initiative and what made Gover- Governor Stitt decide to reform the regulatory code? Yeah, yes. So um, I feel like the new kid on the block, we honestly are newer to this initiative and still kind of in our early phases. Um, so going back, even before Governor Stitt was elected, he was driven to find efficiencies. So when he stepped into the role as governor, it was kind of a natural fit for him to start pursuing quickly and, and during his uh, administration. So shortly after we took office in January 2019, we actually had Mercatus Uh, come visit with our team about the work of regulatory reform across the nation. And to be honest, this meeting was a great starting point for us behind the scenes as we began looking at initiatives and possible uh, work to be done in the coming year. Um, And as the year progressed, Governor Stitt did continue to take great interest in the work being done at both the federal level with President Trump and the local level as a way to remove those unnecessary uh, restrictions on the Oklahoma books. being a businessman, you know, he strongly believes in removing any unnecessary obstacles or barriers that hinder our job creators, our government agencies and efficiencies and operations, and just general citizens across the state. I specifically remember in our first term, in our first year, um, work uh, him continuously dragging back and being looking at the work being done by Governor Little, Little in Idaho, and he kept drawing to that as well as the work being done by Governor Ducey in Arizona, specifically the licensing uh, reform you guys have been working on. So with, I guess, with that long story short, the point, from that point on, our team went to work on researching and preparing somewhat of an action plan roughly based around Mercatus and our surrounding states that are already starting to do this reform um, for us to join the movement. Our first steps in this area was looking at occupational licensing reform, and then that's when we moved on to start looking at a full review of our administrative code, um, which involved a lot of digging in our Oklahoma administrative rule process in history. In addition, the reason we started probably with the occupational licensing piece is our first session, we did pass the military spouse reciprocity language similar to Arizona. Um, We have numerous members in our House and Senate who have been interested in working on licensing reform. Mm -hmm. In Oklahoma, we have a licensing review commission that was established, I believe, in 2018 by legislation. So members of our legislature and some stakeholders have already been in the process of reviewing occupational licenses. And that's kind of how that came about to uh, slowly move towards um, passing that military spouse reciprocity bill. And we actually took interest. I believe I actually talked to Gretchen our first session in about the universal licensing recognition. 
Um, and we actually had that legis- piece of legislation running. Some members in our House and Senate were pursuing that during the 2020 session, with, and we were fully supporting getting that across the finish line. Then COVID came, and unfortunately, we had some delays in the legislature, but we're hoping to bring that back up this coming session to extend it to all of Oklahoma as well. Okay, so let me ask you a follow-up. What were the hurdles that you faced in trying to do this? What were the uh, the negative uh, comments that you were hearing, whether it was acceptable, you could do it, you couldn't do it? What did you face? Yeah, so I guess it's easy to say since we are in early phases, We we uh, our EO went out at the beginning of this year, like Dr. Burrell said. Um, executive order, your executive, executive order. order. Our executive order went out, I believe, first week of February. So I always say end of January, beginning of February. Okay. Uh, the first immediate hurdle I think we faced in our state when we began this process was probably the uncertainty from our state agencies. Um, mm. As I'm sure many states partaking in this reform will encounter, uh, from our experience, my experience and the governor's, I think the root of the worry was probably just our agency's weariness and the fear behind removal of those necessary and justified regulations that are so critical to our public health and safety. And that's not at all the intention of the reform, obviously. So um, this is something we work to address very early on, thanks to the research and recommendations actually by Mercatus in a specific area. I think you always refer to it uh, as agency buy-in. So (laughs) governors and our state COO kind of prioritize including our agency leaders far ahead of the launch and the issuance of our executive order. Um, which was very, very helpful. Uh, We learned early on how important it was that we have those regulating agencies feeling like they're actually a part of the solution and improvement and not the problem or the enemy during this process because they are the ones who can, they've been the game changer in these reform efforts, especially during these months of COVID, uh, during this launch as they've worked to review their administrative codes and identify those costly, outdated, duplicative, and burdensome regulations on their books they know their code better than anyone. So with that said, that was something not not the worst hurdle faced, thankfully, since we addressed it early on. But that was something that most states, I believe, will encounter if you don't try to start out early with that partnership. Um, they've been amazing throughout COVID. Uh, we had a, uh, our executive order required their reports for their review to be submitted no later than August 1st. We've been very understanding, but we've had about almost 90% full compliance despite the COVID months. We've been in full communication with all of our agencies through that time. Um, So that's on that side of the launch. On the occupational licensing side, I can't say what Gretchen said a moment ago, the fear of the safety area. That's been kind of some of the pushback with universal licensing recognition has been, uh, how do we do this safely? We don't want people coming in the state, not having full training equivalent to ours. And we go, Governor Stitt goes behind exactly what Ducias said, like, They've had their training. They've been working in these fields for how long in their own states. We just want to remove any barriers or hurdles that they can come. We've had the military spouse reciprocity in place. It's been working fine this past year. So that's why we're pursuing that again this year. Well, at this point in time, I was going to invite people to start sending me questions in the uh, Q&A function, but I already have a number of them. Uh, Universal license regulation. You still collect license fees, but do not require them to go through the process, correct? Yes, that is correct. So there's still a licensed person and uh, um, they receive an occupational license by the state of Arizona. They just don't have to go through all of the the training and requirements that uh, we have for Arizonans. Because some some have, you have to have hundreds of hours of training. So you're cutting all of that that time out and also not making them pay for that training. Exactly. I I mean, I think the cosmetology license is something like a thousand plus hours, which is crazy because a real estate agent in Arizona is 90 hours. I'm not sure 
how that relates. That's an entirely different topic. Um, but yeah, so all that we're saying is, you know, if, if a cosmetology license in, you know, California is 750 hours, we're not going to make you take the extra hours of training. You, you've already been working. Your license is in good standing. Um, you're, you're good to go. I was just going to add on that, um, you know, when you think about the burdens of licensure, the fees are, in most cases, they're a few hundred dollars and a few crazy cases that they can tip over a thousand, but that's not the real burden. The real burden are is the, the work experience, uh, which can be, uh, you know, sometimes uh, tens of thousands of uh, uh, hour, uh, of dollars caught, foregone in terms of uh, not working, uh, and also just the, whatever cost it is to actually get the education. And a lot of them are really mismatched. Uh, you know, as Gretchen was, was saying, if you look across the country, the average um, cosmetology is uh, requirements about 10 months, and it's about 10 times what uh, the, the uh, requirements are for EMTs. So it's, it, it doesn't, it's, it's, a, it's really mismatched to the public uh, health and safety. Jessica, did you want to uh, address uh, that question? Yes. So kind of on the same aspect of uh, Gretchen, obviously we haven't implemented it fully, but with it, they will pay the same licensure fees in Oklahoma has been the plan and under uh, military spouse reciprocity, that's the same. They just don't have to jump through any hurdles of getting retraining under Oklahoma standards. We will honor what the uh, state they've been practicing in requires. All right, we've got uh, the second question on that is from Charlie, who's a Vermont state rep. Can you quantify how many licenses have been issued under universal license regulation and what has been the real impact more than the attempt? So who wants that one first, Gretchen or Jessica? I'll take it first. Um, It's a great question. It's in the hundreds. I don't have the latest number in front of me. Um, I think I mentioned the top three licenses that are benefiting from uh, the universal license recognition is contractors. So licensed contractors moving to the state of Arizona, cosmetology, which is a big one. I, I know there's just a lot of costs, not only related to the education piece, but also the testing piece. So even if you could prove that you had, you know, the appropriate level of education, if you had to retake the exam, that could be thousands of dollars. Um, plus you have to go back and study. And, and, you know, at that point you've you've passed your practicals, right? You've been working. So it just, it's completely nonsensical. And the other big one, which I think is really important, especially during COVID times and, and Arizona, um, we do have a, a problem with, with suicide as well. So the behavioral health um, uh, specialists have been one of the um, top three beneficiaries of the license. So those are real impacts for real people um, who are able to work with the training that they've already received. All right, Jessica? So just going off of our military spouse reciprocity, I also forgot to mention, so two, we ran two bills actually last session, universal licensing recognition, and we carried a teacher recognition bill separate as a separate entity to do that statutorily in Oklahoma with our teacher certification requirements. Um, so teachers, educators are one of the highest benefiters with our military groups and uh, cosmetology is another high group. I don't have numbers right in front of me because that legislation has only been act- enacted for about a year, but I know that the numbers are starting to rise. Okay. I'm going to go on to another question. Are there any best practices or better qualities we can identify among the states that have adopted a one in two out regulatory cap? Any observations with regard to enforcement or scope of application of the cap? Uh, either James or Matt, I'm, I'm going to ask either one of you to address that. Um, I can comment. So right. the, fir- the first thing I would say is don't have a lot of exemptions to the cap. So you could contrast 
Texas and Ohio in this regard. Texas has a one-in-one-out policy, but there's a lot of exemptions and there's a lot of flexibility for agencies to justify getting their rule out of having to be offset by taking another rule away. Um, I think they exempt, they say something like if it's related to health, safety, and the environment, it doesn't, the cap doesn't apply. So you, practically anything can fit through that. Um, in Ohio, there's almost no exemptions for their one in two out requirement. Um, I would also say try to lock in the reforms after you've had a few years of one in two out. So in Idaho, they did one in two out for a year. And now there's a it, basically a one in one out policy in place after they had some major reductions. Um, also, how wh- how you implement the cap matters. What's your measure? What exactly are you offsetting? Um, in Texas, it's more of like a cost offset, um, whereas in Ohio, it's basically for every new requirement added, you have to take one away. Um, a cost estimate sounds better in theory, but most regulations don't even have cost estimates. So in places where we've seen them impose these budgets with a cost estimate cap, it's it's usually anything with a cost estimate the cap applies. Anything that doesn't have a cost estimate, it doesn't apply. And so at the federal level, for example, most regulations don't have to go through this one and two out process because they don't even have good cost estimates. Um, and then I would finally, I would just say, attach a concrete goal to the one and two out requirement. So Oklahoma is a great example. They have a 25% reduction target that they're trying to achieve with this one and two out requirement. So you, you'll be able to assess at the end of the reform, hey, did we hit our target or not? If there's no goal, then it becomes kind of unclear how successful it is. Matt, did you want to add to that? James covered almost everything. The only thing I might add is that um, Mercatus can help. Uh, So if in in terms of that measure, you know, we have measures of regulatory restrictions in the code. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not just a matter of counting pages or counting regulations, but we can actually use machine learning tools to identify instances in the code where uh, people are limited through word, uh, the appearance of words like shall, must, uh, may not. And so we can, uh, we could actually turn those on your code and you can use that as a way to measure uh, success towards the goal. This is more of a basic question, but it's a good one. Um, This could be a little overwhelming for a state who has not uh, implemented any reforms. So where do we start? Which regulations produce the greatest harm? So if there was a pecking order, would it be universal uh, license recognition? I mean, what would the advice be? Gretchen, do you want to, do you have any advice? Sure. I have a couple of thoughts here. Um, I I think the reason that universal license recognition, or at least starting with the military spouse, I mean, I I think I shared how, um, you know, starting on the military spouse side, then you're able to make the case. And I think, you know, um, people kind of understand that military spouses are very mobile and they're, you know, moving a lot. So, Mm -hmm. but the reason that one is so important is because it's, it's real individual people. Um, And I think you can really tell good stories. Um, We have many stories about people who, you know, have 10, 20 years of experience come to Arizona or came to Arizona in the past um, and weren't able to do the thing that they've always done. And it's just, it's so, it's ridiculous because why did government, however many years ago, decide that some things needed an occupational license and other things didn't? And so, so anyway, I think that's a real, you can make a really good moral case about why that impacts individual people. You know, I think once you get into the sort of the the code and breaking down sort of the the burdens of shall and and all of that, 
that starts to get a little bit harder for just the average person to understand. And of course it has an impact and we do the same thing. Ours is a um, one in three out rule, but I'd love to talk to names after about um, ways that we can improve it. But um, I, I think that gets a little bit more wonky and just hard for people to understand. When you're talking about real people, their live, their livelihoods and their ability to work, um, you can make some really compelling cases. So I think that would be a, a great place to start. Jessica, would you like to add to that? Where do you start so, since you're new at this? Since we're new, so I'll come from, you know, just our first experience. So I would say what Gretchen said, I would, anything limiting economic and workforce growth is something very important. I think most every state will agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, at least for Governor Stitt, anything to work to improve our economy by removing those obstacles is is something high priority. Occupational licensing reform was the example I was I would mention, but she's already, she knows it better than anyone else. Um, so I would say on a different scale, looking at on the administrative code side, I think it's so important that on our on the story we tell, we started this process on our administrative code review. And through our research, we found that there's been no agency-wide review of our administrative code throughout the history of the state that we could find, wow. which is interesting. I wonder how many states are in the same shoes that we were in, that how much duplication uh buildup of rules on the books set there, you know, things that you don't know have existed for so long. So I said, I would think a simple step for most states where we've started and we're just finishing up this process of our initial review is you have to get a grasp on your administrative code to get a baseline. If you don't have a baseline, how are you going to effectively hit our goal of 25% over the next three years? So I think that would be a good start for anyone looking into, uh, starting the reform efforts on the administrative code side and go through those regulations. And that way, when it's like for us, we're in the process right now of reviewing our reports submitted by our agencies. We have it lined out in front of us and we're pri- we can start prioritizing, especially throughout this pandemic. It's almost a key time that we've been able to look at what have we identified so far. We can see, you know, every other state has temporarily suspended some regulations on the books. What can we permanently look at doing now? And I think these reports, honestly, it just came at a good time for us to launch that. And our agencies have done a great job. So I would say the actual review. Let me ask you, how did you go about that process with your agencies? Was it um, a memo from the governor's office? What were the practical steps that you took to start reviewing your administrative code? Yeah, so the practical steps, I mentioned a little earlier in my first uh, first response to our first question was that we we did very early on loop in our agencies. We didn't want them to be hit by a blow that, hey, y'all need to start an in-depth review of your entire code. So we kind of are, are the governor Stitt and our COO for the state, they do kind of regular, they try to do some regular meetings with our agency heads for our executive branches. And we kind of got them in the room and gave them a heads up that, listen, we want you to be a part of this initiative. We know that you guys are amazing. The amazing work we do, you do, your staff is the best fit to do this. So we kind of just drew them in really, really quick and let them know that we're going to be issuing this executive order. This is roughly the goal we're looking at. Um, we were just really open door policy on any questions coming in, because if you look at executive order 2020-03 uh, is our executive order that uh, we issued at the beginning of this year. It outlines it very, very straightforward, but when you've never had in our state that happen and they can only look at neighboring states, our, every code is unique. Every code mm-hmm. is specific. Yes. So we were pretty open door. Our legal team and our policy team on agencies, their uh, admin code liaisons, their general counsels coming to us and asking, 
hey, does this one count? What does this do? Now we're in the process of the one in two out, having them come to us on specifics like, well, you, you know, they're trying to determine they want to follow the rules correctly. And I think having that open door policy and being very open from the start has enabled it to so far flow pretty fluidly. All right. Great. From an academic point of view, either Matt or James, where would you recommend people begin? Um, I guess I would say I would reiterate what Jessica said, which is I think it really helps to do a first pass and just capture some basic information to get a lay of the land of your regulatory environment. So count up how many requirements you have. You're going to have a 25% or 30% reduction goal. You have to know where you're starting from. Um, You can just look for basic things like, does this regulation still have legal authority? You'll be surprised. Over time, statutes get changed and the legal authority for regulations disappears. Um, Or is this regulation discretionary or is it mandated by law? And by discretionary, I mean, could the agency just amend it or repeal it without a statute being changed? Arizona has a requirement like that as part of their reviews. And so this gives you a sense, this gives a governor a sense of what's what's in my authority to change very easily. Uh, You could also look for things like, is this regulation, does it have a disproportionate impact on small business? Um, Other states like Virginia, they've opted to start with pilot programs that focus narrowly on one kind of regulation. It could be regulations suspended during the pandemic. It could be occupational licensing regulations. It could be uh, criminal, criminal justice, justice regulations, yeah. something like that, where maybe there's a fair amount of consensus that there's a problem in this area. Uh, and you could start narrowly and then potentially expand if the pilot program goes well. Okay, Mac, do you want to add any last comments before we move on to a couple of other questions? Sure. Um, So let me just suggest sort of two classes of regulations that I think are particularly suspect. Um, One is regulations that limit entry into any type of field or uh, business. Um, The problem with these is that they tend to undermine competition. And um, while the idea is, you know, oh, if we have a well-designed quality gate, only those who are really high quality can get through it. Uh, as it turns out, this, you know, that's a reasonable theory, but that competes with another uh, well-supported theory, which is that competition itself tends to increase quality. And so when you look at the data, despite the perceptions that most people have, the data is not really there that regulations like occupational licensure protect the public health and safety. So um, we did a survey of, of uh, about two or three decades of research on this recently, and we found um, most studies, 57%, actually find no effect of occupational licensure on quality whatsoever. But here's the interesting thing. Of those that do find an effect, there are three times as many, 32% versus 11%, that find that occupational licensure undermines quality rather than enhances it. Um, And, you know, it does this by raising prices and um, sometimes causing people to have to, uh, you know, do things themselves. So for example, there's a study of electricians that found that um, not only does, it, does occupational licensure raise the price of, electric, uh, of an electrician, it makes people like me more likely to uh, do electrical work. And that's a really bad idea. Yes. Um, <laughs> For your family's sake, yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so that would be the first category is any, any regulation that limits entry is um, there's not a lot of evidence that those really protect the health and safety. And there, there is tons of evidence that they raise prices uh, and they may undermine quality. Um, but then the second category is any regulation that has a disparate impact. 
on certain populations. And this is, one, again, another reason why occupational licensure has come under such uh, close scrutiny by academics um, and, and policymakers in recent years. So a lot of occupational licensing rules, for example, discriminate against those uh, for whom English is a second language. Many of them uh, discriminate against those uh, without um, higher education. So for example, they, they may have formal requirements uh, for, for certain education, or they may have rules that you have to understand. Uh, you actually have to pass a legal test to understand the, uh, the statutes governing that, that uh, profession. Well, you know, many of us, uh, English isn't a second language and most of us, law is definitely, a, a, you know, a, a second language, right? So uh, that, that poses a, a disparate impact problem. There's also research, um, you know, showing that a, a lot of occupational licenses, uh, licensing rules discriminate against um, those with prior convictions, um, those who move frequently, um, uh, and also eth ethnic and, and uh, racial minorities tend to be harmed disproportionately by these types of rules. So those are the two categories I would identify. Wow. Okay, we're gonna. I would. We got two questions here on small businesses. The first is: Are there any reforms you'd recommend to help new businesses or startups? So, who would like that one? James, can I start with you on that? Sure. So, kind of in line with what Matt said, there's a considerable amount of evidence that regulation disproportionately burdens small businesses. They don't have these big compliance departments to help them make their way through the maze of regulations. Um, and so usually what's, what states will do in this area is carve out certain special procedures for rules that impact small businesses in a disproportionate way. So one option, for example, is to create a, a commission to review small business-related regulations. South Carolina and Wyoming are both states that have independent small business commissions, and they review every regulation to ascertain whether it has is likely to have an an impact on small business. And they actually have members of the small business community on this commission. Um, and there's pros and cons to doing that, but it's certainly worthwhile to get some input from business, the business community about regulations. Uh, another option is analysis that focuses on small businesses. Sometimes it's called regulatory flexibility analysis. And the idea is to create flexibility for small businesses if a rule's likely to disproportionately impact them. Maybe you'll create some exemptions for them. Um, then the last thing I would say is that through analysis, if you identify that certain rules are likely to disproportionately impact small business, then you could create special procedures for those rules. Like they have to be reviewed every five years, perhaps by the commission or perhaps, perhaps be subject to economic analysis or maybe these rules should be sunset after a certain number of years, um, or they should be repealed and replaced with, with a new regulation after a certain number of rules, uh, a certain number of years. Um, and so those would, those are broadly the reforms that I can think of. Right. Um, uh, Gretchen or Jessica, do you want to add to that for small businesses? Sure. I'll take a stab at this one as well. Um, the, something that governor Ducey has always, uh, implored upon us is go talk to the people who have to do it. You know, I think it's one thing to, to sit in our office and think about what is harming a small business. It's an entirely different thing to go sit down with them and say, what process did you go through? Where did you um, run into hurdles? What could have gone better for that? Um, a couple things quickly. I, one thing that I think um, people may want to look into is this concept of a regulatory sandbox. Oh, We've passed yes. a couple of those in Arizona. They're really fun. The governor has gotten to go visit some cool companies, take 
taking advantage of the sandbox, but essentially it's like, we want you to have the opportunity to grow. We want you to be innovative. We want you to continue looking um, for new solutions, services, products for people. Um, you're different. You don't fit into any of these other categories. Go into the sandbox and prove to us what you can do. Show us what you can do. Um, so that's one thing that, that I would suggest. But, uh, but what, what does a sandbox do? It's basically no regulations. Okay. For a limited amount of time? Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I can send around some research. There's been some really cool scholarly articles out of Arizona. Some of the organizations that we work with here who've talked about the power of a sand, sandbox. Um, and so I think it'd be something that, that people should look into, especially as they're looking at sort of that small business, entrepreneurial startup uh, type of, of innovation. So that's one thing I would suggest. Um, the other thing, and I think this gets into the other question we have about um, small businesses is government is so confusing. I, I don't know. I've been working here for six years and half the time, I don't know where I'm supposed to go to get information. So I think um, something that we've been working on in Arizona that I think other states could look at as well is this concept of a business one-stop, that you should really only have to interface with the government one time. You don't need to give every section of the government your information. Why aren't these things talking to each other? Why can't your business license talk to your, your sales tax license? You know, Why are you having to, to prove over and over again that you have the qualifications? So it's really a technology solution um, more than anything, but I think just sort of that constant re-energizing of government, thinking about government more in terms of um, service for citizens, that to me is how you're really going to help small business. And I think that's something that, you know, um, Governor Ducey has also been really, really adamant about is like, why is this so confusing for people to navigate government? It shouldn't be that hard. Okay, just to, uh, the question she's referring to, someone said a small business owner said he couldn't navigate registration and ended up paying for two different forms, neither of which was found to be the right form. Besides licensing, what steps have your states done to make uh, starting a business easier? So we've heard from you, Gretchen. Jessica, what would you like to say about uh, starting businesses and how have you made it easier for businesses? Yeah, so kind of following up on Gretchen's talk on technolo the technology side, um, Governor Stitt, actually, when he came into office, one of his appointments is he created a secretary a cabinet member, secretary of administration and digital transformation. Um, so that was something in our administration, um, we were a little behind on the times on technology in a lot of our agencies. And I know coming from a small business standpoint, navigating, L filing your LLC, all these sim simple things that should be simple um, are actually quite difficult. <laughs> and a lot of the times and it, uh, little things like your annual filings not being digitized or automatic or reminders. I know through these past years, We've kind of worked in that Secretary of State's office and other offices on digitizing and making a lot of things uh, automatically kick out to you. Uh, notices, you should get a, a notice on your filing. You should know where to go, one stop to go here and fill out this form. Uh, for the shared services concept, Grant Gretchen was mentioning, that is something that our cabinet member has been talking about on a lot of things with licensure and uh, one-stop shops. Governor Stitt also launched his online checkbook um, which is a one-stop shop for citizens to be have more transparency to Oklahoma on seeing the budget process, what's going on, and having easy access to all other government websites. So that's some things that we've implemented on the digital side. Okay, very good. Um, James, I would love to ask you, um, you referenced earlier that West Virginia had a unique reform with the Economic Analysis Unit. Could you give us a little bit more information about that and why that's important or to, for a state to consider? Sure. So West Virginia is kind of an interesting state because they didn't, uh, they're one of the few states that didn't have any 
kind of um, process for scoring legislation to determine its budgetary effects. So they they were decided that they would create a, a fiscal affairs office to analyze legislation for its budgetary effects. And they added on a responsibility for this office to look at the effects of regulation in terms of their costs and benefits. And now most states actually have some kind of requirement in place for regulations to be subjected to cost benefit analysis, but it's not taken very seriously. It's usually just a like a two page form that the agency has to fill out and just stack it on top of the paperwork when they file a rule. And it's the agency themselves that's doing the analysis, if you can, can call it analysis. And so it tends to be pretty flattering to the policy and doesn't really scrutinize it the way that you'd like. And so what's innovative about what West Virginia is doing is it's an independent office. It's under the supervision of the, of the legislature. And so it's, um, it has the potential, I mean, it's still just getting started to be more objective. Um, we've, and I think there's reasons to believe it will be objective. If you look at the federal level, uh, the analytical offices that are in the legislative branch, like CBO or the Congressional Research Service or Government Accountability Office, they tend to be more trusted than the uh, analytical offices in the executive branch out of these regulatory agencies, which tend to be very political. So it, West Virginia is something to follow because it's still just getting started, but it looks like it could be a good model. All right. Uh, Matt, I'd like to follow up a little bit uh, on the Fresh Start Initiative. You uh, discussed this could happen at the federal or at the state level, creating this commission, which would essentially review uh, regulations given up or down vote. Is, does this happen? Should this happen legislatively? Should the governor be doing this? Uh, do you create an agency's? Uh, what are the processes for this? What would you recommend for states who would like to consider this? Yeah, so, I mean, I think one of the um, points that we're trying to make is that it really is a, it's a relatively open process that could be uh, tailored a number of different ways. Um, so I, th- I could foresee it uh, emanating uh, from either the executive branch or the legislative branches. Uh, you know, one problem with the executive branch is that many uh, regulatory limits are, or restrictions are in the code. Uh, so, you know, for example, uh, New Mexico's governor a few years ago um, wanted to liberalize occupational licensure and, and had an executive order that basically required the state to, um, in any case, in, in any instance where it could, um, make sure that the requirements were about 75% of the national average. So uh, lowering the state's requirements. Problem is, it's it was very unclear which types of um, occupational licenses this would affect. And the the best guess is it didn't affect many of them because so many of those requirements are written into law. So probably it should come for the legislature, but the executive can certainly take a, take a prominent role. One thing I suppose we should point out is that we are inspired in some part by um, successful, other successful reforms that have that same characteristic of um, overcoming special interests um, who have a constant benefit from a concentrated benefit and uh, uh, imposing costs on diffuse populations. And so our specific example here is the BRAC commissions at the federal level um, in the 90s. Um, You know, essentially- What is the BRAC commission? So BRAC stands for Base Realignment and Closure. um, And essentially for decades, um, the generals 
um, in the Pentagon had requested uh, reductions in military base spending because the military base spending was obs- was uh, in many ways strategically obsolete. Uh, now, if you have an agency actually saying reduce our budget in this area, uh, that's got to be a pretty good indication that maybe it's a problem. Um, but for decades, Congress didn't do anything because um, not because they were unconvinced by the strategic case made by the uh, generals, but because they have, uh, you know, the local communities that host the base want the base to, to be there. And this is a classic example where, okay, it's not really providing the general public good. Instead, it's providing a very specific um, good to, to local communities through the uh, through jobs, but it's at a, at a cost for taxpayers. So what they did with uh, base realignment and closure commissions is they set up an independent commission. Um, the those who were put on the commission were um, had no financial stake in in the matter, but they were often like retired military or retired uh, policymakers who could analyze the the problem, make a recommendation, and Congress actually tied its own hands and it made it difficult. For Congress to over to to change the recommendations, so the recommendations of the BRAC Commission took effect automatically, uh, and it required um, both houses of Congress and the President to override them. Uh, and what was kind of interesting about this and cool about this is that the legislators could go before the commission and plead and get down on their hands and knees and say, "Please don't close the base in my commission in, in my district," and it would still be closed. Uh, so BRAC is this is a uh, one thing to point out is it's not necessarily well liked by legislators, and that's okay um, because the whole purpose of it is to allow the legislators to cast an obvious and conspicuous vote for the general interest. Uh, in that case, uh, limiting spending. In this case, it could be for de- decreasing regulation, but to give them a little bit of cover. Um, from the special interests. So they punt to some degree on which particular bases were closed, or in this case, it would be which particular regulations would be would be curtailed or limited or changed. And it's okay if they go out and they bash the commission, <laughs> because the whole point of it is actually to recognize that legislators face a very difficult problem where, you know, eliminating a regulation that is has been shown to not be in the public's interest is very, very difficult when it benefits a protected special interest uh, from by limiting, limiting them from competition. All right, great. Uh, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to ask you, Gretchen, what are next steps for your state? And then I'll ask you the same question, Jessica. Great question. Uh, the governor, another uh, issue that he cares a lot about is criminal justice reform. Uh, how are we helping inmates get back to work? Um, I've got some really fascinating stories about uh, people who've you know been in prison, done their time, uh, get out of prison, attempt to go back to work, and they're told um, based on good moral character that they can't work. Um, so we're looking at our good moral character statutes. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done there. It's never going to be over, um, unfortunately. I think, or fortunately for policy wonks like me. Um, But anything we can do to continue making Arizona, uh, you know, an easier place to get to work, I think, um, from the governor's perspective, that that's a good thing. And so we'll continue this effort far into the future. Great. Jessica, how about you? What's Oklahoma going to do next? So as I've said time and time before, we're still in early phases. So we are taking our steps one at a time. We're finishing up this review process of the reports, and we're going to take that next step and go into our agency starting to implement and abide by the one in two out policy. 
Um, something I'm hoping since we're still early phases of this initiative is I know uh, it's so important to keep this going on long after our administration. So I know our legislature has been great partners in looking and learning and trying to educate and find new ways that they can innovate and uh, tackle the regulatory reform process. I'm hoping that down the road that some of the measures that we're starting to take in these early phases may be codified so they would continue on once, you know, we move on. Um, so we are going through that process on a regular agenda. We're going to tackle a few items again. We're going to try to get this universal licensing recognition. I'm so excited our legislature is still pursuing this, and we will support that fully to hopefully get that across the road. So we got a lot to catch up on. I know it's been a, quite a year, so we're looking forward to this legislative session and seeing what our, our team can accomplish. All right, last question for you, James and Matt. Is there something that we have not discussed that's really important for a lot of the elected officials who are watching this today or anything that didn't come up in the conversation? James, I'm going to start with you. Um, this came up briefly, but I would just emphasize again, getting buy-in from the regulators themselves is just really critical. Mm-hmm. Um, it can, it, it's not helpful when, when uh, policymakers speak about you know, unaccountable bureaucrats who are running wild and trampling all over our liberties. I mean, you're going to need help from the civil servants who work in the executive branch. Very often, they're the ones doing a lot of the hard work, reviewing their rules, trying to figure out which ones are working well, which ones maybe can be have outlived their usefulness. And so uh, you can take lessons from states like Idaho, where they gave awards to the regulators that cut the most red tape. They even had golden scissors they handed out. And just show your appreciation to them because they're ultimately going to be a big part of whether the reform is successful or not. I think that's a great point. And Matt, how about you? Yeah, it's uh, maybe an obvious point, but leadership matters here. You know, in a lot of these successful cases where uh, policymakers have managed to take away a special interest privilege that limits competition or something like that, it has involved um, leadership and often bipartisan leadership. This is just should not just be something that, um, Republicans push, uh, you know, there is a long and storied history of Democrats uh, getting rid of regulations that limit competition and that have a disparate impact. And I think that should be talked about and celebrated. And um, it's going to make it a much more permanent reform if it's bipartisan. I think those are all excellent points. We have come to the end of our time. I want to thank all of you for joining our panel tonight. And I want to thank everybody for watching. Again, I'd like to mention any of the research or any of the um, uh, specific uh, items from uh, the different states that have mentioned. We're going to send out an email with all of that. You can click on that. And if you want to talk to anybody uh, after a said and done and have a further discussion, please just send us an email. We'll be happy to set that up. So again, thank you for joining us, everyone. And have a great rest of the day. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to request a meeting with one of our speakers or ask them a question, please email outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.